stand and join us as Baptism Sunday, praising our King together.
Can we clap our hands? Can we celebrate the Lord? He's good and His love endures forever. Hey! Ah. Friends, it's so good when we gather together to worship the Lord, to lift up the name of Jesus. Um, friends, I was thinking about this even this morning, how when we come to worship God, when we come to sing songs, to praise His name, to even pray the holy prayers, it's not just an act that we're doing just to, you know, honor God, but God is doing something in the midst of our worship to us. There's a formation that is happening. Um, I like, I've heard it said this way, that, that worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, He reforms our desires, and He rehabituates our loves. There's a formation that's taking place. You may not even be aware of it, but God is redirecting your passions and your loves to him. Suddenly, you begin to love the things that God loves. You begin to yearn for the things that God yearns, and you desire the things that God desires. And scripture amplifies this. The love of God has been shed abroad our hearts by God's dynamic Holy Spirit. So friends, I just simply wanted to share that and say, let's lean into God today. Let's lean into the worship. Let's lean into the prayers because God is forming us in these moments right here. Will you do that with me today? So as people of praise, let us read Psalm 97 together. Let's say it full of faith. Let's read together. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all peoples see his glory. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Can we just take a second to rejoice one more time in the Lord? Yeah, let's go. Come on, let's sing more songs. Songs about faith, songs about the new life we have in Christ. Sing it out if you know. Baptized in water, sealed by the fire, washed in forgiveness, born to new life, into a family, just like here, placed in belonging.
You can lift your hands up to the Lord. Clap your hands, church, real strong this morning. Oh, come bless the Lord with me, church. We bless you. We bless you. Lord, we believe that you are all in all and that you will be all in all when you return. Friends, I just want to lean into a moment of prayer. I want to ask you to join me right now. Father, we believe today that you are at work, not only in our lives and in this space, but you are at work in the entirety of the world, even in places where it seems like you are not at work. We choose to believe and place our faith in the fact that you are at work in all seasons and at all times and at all places. And so, Father, right now, I just pray over every pocket of hostility, over every place of war, over every place of contention, over every place of conflict and crisis, God, here in this room, in our very lives, in our families, in our marriages, in our businesses, in our bodies. But, Lord, even beyond this room, God, into our city, places in our nation, O oh God, that are experiencing hostility and conflict and division. Father, even across the world right now, we pray for Israel. We pray, Father God, for those that are in, in harm's way, those that are in Gaza and the Gaza Strip. Father, we pray that the kingdom of God would come. We pray for a revelation of the Messiah, Jesus. Father, we pray that the hostility and the hatred and the offense that lies within the human heart would be healed by the power of the revelation of Jesus, our Savior. Father, we pray that for all of those that are involved uh, in this conflict, God, from the lowest level to the ground level, God, all the way to those that are making decisions regarding this war. And Father, we pray for the wisdom that is from above to be released, the wisdom that is pure, the wisdom that loves peace, the wisdom that is submissive and impartial and righteous, the wisdom that is full of good fruit, the wisdom that brings about the life of God. So Holy Spirit, right now, would you do what no politician, what no leader, what no cabinet, what no ruler could do? God, would you do what only you can do? Would you transform the hearts of men? Would you change the hearts of those, God, that are angry, th those that are offended? And Father God, would you turn their hearts to the living God? Father, we pray, let your kingdom come and let your will be done in Jesus' name. Now, friends, I just want to invite you right now, just in this space of prayer, I want you to hold your hands open and invite the kingdom of God right now. Just invite the kingdom of God. Father, we invite the kingdom of God to be established in our hearts, to be established in this place. Kingdom of God come. Will of God be done. Rule and reign of Jesus we not only welcome you, but we pray for the reign of Jesus in our streets, in our city, God, and in the nations of the earth. We welcome your reign. We welcome the rule of Jesus. We pray it today by faith and in agreement in Jesus' name. Amen. Can, can we just clap our hands again one time to the Lord? Amen. I want to invite you to have your seat. If you didn't get the memo over the past couple of weeks, today's a special day. Today is Baptism Sunday. We had, Come on, yeah, let's go. I think between the two services, we've got about 16 people that are choosing to make their public declaration of faith in the waters of baptism. Yeah, that's beautiful. And how many of you have friends or family members 
that are being baptized today. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's beautiful, man. Last night, my children, we were sitting around the table. We're having dinner, and I think a handful of them said, we just can't wait till tomorrow, Dad. Tomorrow's Baptism Sunday. It's one of our favorite Sundays of the year. It really is special. It's really a beautiful, public, crowning moment of a decision that people have made to give their lives over completely to the Lordship and to the leadership of Jesus. And so I want to take just a minute or two. We can go ahead and let that music come down a little bit lower. I'm going to just take a minute to describe for you what's happening. And then we're going to invite all of our baptism candidates to come up here into the front. We're going to have some pictures taken of them. And then very simply what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead them in a public declaration of their faith. Kind of think like a vows that are taking place at a wedding ceremony. I'm going to ask them, do you publicly believe in these certain things that have historically been called the Nicene Creed. We're taking our declaration of faith right out of the Nicene Creed. And they're going to stand up here, and every single one of them are going to say, I do. I do believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. I do believe in Christ Jesus, his one and only Son. And then after that, I'm going to invite a couple of my ministry team up here, and we're going to lay hands on them. We're going to pray for them. We're going to pray that that special work that happens in the sacrament of baptism will take place today, right? This is, this is some, something is happening that doesn't happen when we just sit in a hot tub or a swimming pool or take a bath. There's spiritual work that is happening in conjunction with very natural and normal elements and normal means today. And we want to pray towards that end. Then after that, we're going to dismiss these guys to go to these two tanks. Pastor Jonathan and I and Sidron and Christian uh, will help baptize these friends and family members. It's going to be a beautiful, joyous occasion. So here's what I need to give you guys some coaching. Today is not a somber day. T- today, is, today is not, I don't know what your background is, but in this church, like we are allowed to get rowdy. You're allowed, it's, it's permitted. It's permitted. We're allowed to get excited. We're allowed to get raucous and rambunctious. And in fact, I'm going to invite some of you family members and friends to come up here when we baptize them and just to sit up on these steps, right? There's no holy threshold yet. You can't cross up here. You can, I want you to sit up on these steps. I want you to surround these tanks because when they come up out of these waters, I want them to see your faces, right? They belong to the church of God and I want them to see their brothers and their sisters when they come up out of these waters. All right, so very simply, here's what I want to encourage you with and to remind you about and all of those who are being baptized. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, we find that Jesus actually leads the way for us. That Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, steps into the waters of baptism in the Jordan. And it's interesting because the man who is baptizing him is actually his cousin. He's a wild, hairy, crazy-eyed prophet. Some people call him Creepy John, right? John the baptizer, who's Jesus' cousin. Uh, Jesus goes to him and he says, hey, you're baptizing all these people and I need to be baptized. And John, understandably so, backs up and he says, listen, he's like, you should be baptizing me. John recognizes Even in this early stages of Jesus' ministry, John recognizes your divinity. And Jesus says this, and it's so fascinating, and it's very curious, but Jesus says, 
John, we need to do this to fulfill righteousness. Like we, there's something that's happening here in me stepping into the waters of baptism that are crucial. So we have to understand that when Jesus actually stepped into those waters, he redeemed those waters for every human being who would come in after him. Right? Jesus didn't go into the waters of baptism because he was a dirty sinner and he needed to be saved. Jesus stepped into those waters to set something in motion for those waters for every human being who would believe in him, who would be washed and who would be cleansed and who would be redeemed and who would be set into family after Jesus stepped into those waters. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, here's what happens when Jesus comes up out of those waters. And here's what I am believing is going to happen today in a very new and profound way. Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism, and the scriptures tell us that the heavens open up. And the voice of God speaks to Jesus in a very profound and clear way. And he says three things. He says, this is my son. I am praying today that when these beloved sons and daughters come up out of the waters of baptism, that they are marked. I pray that you are marked with the identity of a beloved son and a beloved daughter in a way that you couldn't be marked any other way, that revelation of sonship and revelation of daughterhood just marks you. That guilt and shame and condemnation and obligation, they fall off of you. And that you realize that there's nothing that you can do to earn the Father's love, but that He loves you so radically and so powerfully, and He will never stop loving you. The next thing the Father says is, this is my Son who I love. I love my son, and I am praying for a revelation of the Father's love to come not only to our candidates, but to all of us this morning. And then he says this. He says, I'm so pleased with you. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know today the Father is so pleased with you. He's not pleased with you just because you're getting baptized. This is no silver bullet here, right? He's pleased with you because you belong to him. He's pleased with you because he created you in his image. He's pleased with you because you're his very own. And what you're doing today is you stand here and you publicly declare, I am a follower of Jesus. He is going to wrap you in his robe of affection. He is going to clothe you with his comfort and kindness. And he is going to empower you in a way that you haven't been thus far. So friends, would you clap your hands as these baptism candidates come up here to the front? Come on, guys, give him a really strong hand. Okay, this is totally on the fly. We've never done this before. It's going to be really, really simple. I just want you to introduce yourself. I want you to say, hi, my name is so-and-so, and you can say, I've been following Jesus for however long, five days, five years, five decades, five weeks, five months. Just say, I've been following Jesus. And then you just say how long you've been doing that and pass the microphone all the way down. And then I'm going to lead you guys in our declaration of faith. I am Tyler Sheba. I've been following God for all my life. My name is Paul. I've been following God for about three and a half months. My name's Mason Schmid. I've been following God for a month and a half. I'm Henry, and 
I belong to Jesus. Amen. Uh, I'm Deanna, and I'm following God for year. My name is Leo, so I've been following Jesus for two years. My name is Irene. Uh, I've been following, I've been following, following uh, Jesus for, 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 for 10 years. <laughs> My name is Shaw Richardson. I've been following God for 30 years. Beautiful. All right, my brothers and sisters, I'm just going to lead you here in a public declaration of faith. You can actually see these words that I'm reading here if you want to see them. Um, And everyone, please follow along as these guys make their public declaration of faith. Brothers and sisters, do you believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth? All you simply have to say is, I do. And say it like really loud so those guys way in the back can hear you. Amen. (laughs) Uh, Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was crucified and died and rose again at the third day, living from among the dead and ascended unto heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father and who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead? Amen. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father? Amen. And finally, do you believe in the Holy Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come? I do. Amen. All right. Babe, would you come on up? Sidron, Jonathan. Uh, Martha, Lauren, uh, Bixlers, if you guys want to come up. Mary, come on up here. Uh, We're going to just, come on up here, Christian. Friends, we're going to lay hands on all of these baptism candidates today. I want to invite you to stretch forth your hands. This is a communal family moment right now. Father, in the name of your son, Jesus. Oh, God, we celebrate in the good work that you have done. And we celebrate in the work that you are continuing to do the work of new life, the work of regeneration, the work of sanctification and justification by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the atoning power of the blood and the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the decision that these sons and daughters have made to follow Jesus. Lord, I thank you that they've responded to grace, that they have heard the invitation of the the Master and the Messiah saying, come, follow me. And right now, Lord, we say, let the power of God be at work in and upon and through their lives. Lord, I pray that every gift that you have imparted into them from the moment that they were created would be activated, that it would be released. Lord, I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would keep them from sin. And God, I would pray even today that the delivering power of God would be at work in their lives, God, every form of addiction and bondage and oppression that has been at work in their lives, God, every stronghold of sin today, I pray, would be broken. Lord, I pray that as they come up out of the waters, that they sense and they feel the affirming approval of heaven. Lord, I pray that you would quickly graft them deeply into spiritual family and into spiritual community. 
Lord, I pray that you would give them a voice, that you would give them a word. Lord, that, 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 that prophetic unctions would be upon them. And God, I would even pray today that as they come up out of the waters of baptism, I would pray for spirit baptism. Lord, I ask that you would baptize them not only with water, but also in the fire and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Do what only you can do today as we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Give them one more hand, church. Woo, we're so excited. Let's go. Let's go. Okay. I think that you guys have been assigned to certain places, so I'm going to let you go where you've been assigned to go. I'm going to meet my group way down here, and I'm going to hand my mic off. Deanna Bova. Bova.
Irene Bova. Richardson. Okay, friends, come on. Can we stand up and worship the Lord here together? This is an act of celebration. Let's sing out the name Jesus. Here we go. Let's sing. Sing Jesus, Son of God and Savior, Alpha and Omega, the Messiah. Holy, highest name in heaven, King of all creation, the Messiah. We're singing today, King of all creation, King of all creation, we worship you, we magnify you, oh, you are deserving of our worship and our adoration today, 
King of all creation, Jesus, you are the Messiah. I just want to acknowledge today, God, that you're the one that we've all been waiting for. You're the one that we've been longing for. You're the one that all the prophets wrote about. You're the one that all of this is pointing to. And Jesus, you're the one that we have set our hope on. Jesus, at the end of all of this, this is going to be about you. And today we offer you our devotion and we offer you our worship and we offer you our affection and our praise today. Be magnified, King Jesus, because you are worthy. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Friends, I want to invite you to have a seat here for a moment. I want to encourage us in our giving today. You know, I referenced this verse in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, where Jesus comes up out of the water and he hears the voice of the Father. The Father speaks beloved identity. The Father speaks intimacy. The Father speaks purpose. The Father speaks belonging. And I just want to encourage you today, if you have never heard in the, in the ear of your spirit, maybe it's not audibly, but it's with the ear of your spirit, if you've never heard the affection of God poured out on you, I want to whet your appetite to believe in that. If you've never sensed the overwhelming love and approval of God, I want to whet your appetite to believe for that. Because I want you to know today it's there and it's constant. The Father is for you. The Father loves you. The Father believes in you. The voice of the enemy wants to sow discord and doubt and discouragement and unbelief. The voice of the enemy wants to tear you down and accuse you and condemn you. But the voice of the Father is always speaking beloved identity over your life. He's always speaking his approval over your life. He's always speaking belonging and acceptance over your life. And guys, I want you to know today that everything that we do around here, none of this we do to gain the Father's acceptance. None of it. We don't sing these songs in this kind of magical, mythical hope that like if we sing or if we get baptized or if we toss money in a plate, then we're going to like incur his blessing. We do this out of blessing. We do this from the posture and from the position of knowing we're sons and we're daughters. And so even in our giving, for those of you who've made giving a normal spiritual discipline in your life, whether that be in the form of your tithe or whether that be in offerings or giving special offerings to the poor in the form of almsgiving, I want you to know today, and I want to just recalibrate our motivations. All of this we do as a response to what God has already done for us. All of this we do because he's modeled for us what it means to be generous, to be gracious, and to give. And so today we give as an overflow, as a response of being sons and daughters and saying, God, thank you for everything you've given to us. And we call that worship. Our tithes and our offerings, they're worship. And we believe that as we give this to God, that he is able to do more than with the little that we give him than we're able to do with everything on our own. Do you believe that today? I believe it by faith and I believe it by the word of God. So I want to lead you in a prayer that we've crafted many, many months ago. And this is just a way for us to align our hearts and our faith with what we give. I invite you to pray with me. Father, you are the abundant giver of all good things. Train us to delight in holy dependence. Lead us to honor you 
with all of our resources. Free us from deceit of greed and earthly riches and teach us to give generously with open hands and joy-filled hearts that we might receive abundantly and flourish for the sake of others and your purposes in the earth. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you as you give to the Lord in whatever capacity you give. If you give physically in the form of checks that you can place in the box in the back or whether you give online or through an app, we just want to say thank you for your faithfulness in giving. It matters. It makes a difference. And it helps us to accomplish this good ministry both in our city and around the world. So thank you for your faithfulness. Well, today, because of it being Baptism Sunday, we decided as a ministry team, we wanted our kids to stay in the room, not only for the baptisms, but also for the remainder of the service. So all of you young ones who are K through 5th, we just want to say we're so glad that you guys are spending the rest of the service with you. We love you guys so much. And uh, I know you guys are going to be blessed by what Pastor Jonathan has to share. But we also want to pray a blessing over you And we want to pray this blessing over all of us. And we do this by praying the Lord's Prayer together. I'm going to pray this. And once I say amen, I want you guys just to jump to your feet. Take about two or three minutes. Go love on someone. Let the holy affection and the peace and the love of God flow through your lives. And while we do that, Pastor Jonathan will be making his way up here to bring us the word today. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Friends, let's jump up and let's love on one another for a few minutes.
Good morning, New Life Midtown, and happy Baptism Sunday. My name is Rachel Brown. I oversee the kids' ministry here at New Life Midtown. And can I just say, it is a delight to minister to you and your children and to welcome you. Thank you so much for coming to worship with us today. I think it is so important that kids learn God's character and the Bible stories and biblical literacy. But more than that, we hope and pray that your children encounter God, that they experience His goodness, that they hear His voice, and that they know Him personally. So that is our prayer for you. I've got a just a couple of announcements for us this morning, so let's get into it. First up, we have a Midtown Worship Night this Wednesday night. It's going to be at 6.30 p.m. here at the building. It's going to be an amazing time of worship and prayer together as a Midtown community. We'll see you there. Next up, our Legacy Ministry. We would love to invite you to come out on November 4th. It's going to be a time of fellowship and connection and also information to equip and prepare you for the holiday season that's coming up. You can sign up for that event on the website or at the Welcome Center. That's all from me, friends. Thanks so much for coming to worship with us today. As always, you can see what other announcements and events we have coming up on our website. Hope you have a great Sunday. Well, it's already been a great Sunday, has it not been? <laughs> it is not lost on me that there are many sub-10-year-olds in the room. So I'm going to keep this as short and sweet as I possibly can, all right? I have one quick announcement for you in addition to this uh, that I asked Rachel and Lauren to give uh, personally, and that is in two weeks, two weeks from today, we have a special guest from out of town. Dr. Chris Green will be uh, preaching here on that Sunday morning. Yeah, so there's at least a handful of people who were here the last time that Dr. Chris came. And the Saturday before, the 28th of October, so two weeks from yesterday, from 9 to noon, he's going to be doing a three-hour seminar on trauma, healing, and the life of faith. And I don't have the time nor the expertise to get into all the things that he's going to cover. What it will not be is the science of trauma and what it is and what it is not. What it will be is something along the lines of how do we live this life of faith, faithfully pursuing healing, when trauma is a very real thing that many of us have walked through and many of the people that we love are currently walking through. So if that touches you in any way, I would just ask you to mark your calendars for Saturday morning, the 28th, uh, either in here or in the chapel. Uh, we will be doing a seminar. Dr. Chris, if you've not heard him, if you don't know who he is, let me just tell you. If a three-hour seminar sounds daunting to you, he is one of the few people who will make that time fly by. And if that's not enough, I don't know what to tell you, okay? All right. Today, we are back in our series from the book of 1 Kings. And up, oh, like Pastor Jade last week, I feel the spirit coming on. We got to get up with this boot now. <laughs> I was over there. I was like, when Pastor Jade reminded me that people were going to be coming around, I said, dear God, please don't let someone step on my foot. <laughs> And nobody did, so thank you so much, friends and family. That was fantastic. Yes, praise the Lord. Blessing. Okay, amen. Uh, we're back in our series, First Kings. We've been taking a topical approach through this series uh, of highlighting characters. So we started with Hannah, then Samuel, then Saul, David, Pastor Jade preached on Solomon. Last week was an anomaly week where we talked about outreach and missions. And this week we're back in First Kings. And we're taking a character study, or I am taking a character study approach once more this morning, but it's not a, a human character study. It's the study of the temple. We're going to look at the temple. And there are four chapters right in the middle, chapter four, five, or five, six, 
five, six, seven, and eight. I can't count. Who knows? Algebra was a long time ago, guys. <clears throat> I know I don't look that old, but I have a lot of gray hair if you get up close. Four chapters right in the middle of 1 Kings are dedicated to the preparation, the building, and the dedication of the temple. And so we're going to spend just a few minutes today talking about the temple. Now, you may be wondering, where did the idea of the temple begin? And if you remember two weeks ago, Pastor Jade talked about Solomon at the beginning of his kingship was posed with this opportunity to come before the Lord to to ask of the Lord one thing. What is the one thing that Solomon wanted? How many? Wisdom. Solomon requested wisdom. If you can't ask for infinite wishes, that's a good one. That's a good thing to ask for, right? Lord, let me never be in a situation where I don't know how to respond or what to do. That's fantastic. And it occurred to me that David was never really asked this by the Lord, but David did tell the Lord that there was one thing that he wanted. David said it in Psalm 27, verse 4. He said, one thing I ask of the Lord. This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Now here's the thing. That psalm was written long before David was king. It was in the time when he was running from Saul and he's out in the wilderness. And think about this. David is fleeing for his life. He's been anointed to be king, but he is not yet king. And the current king, who he loves, is chasing him, trying to kill him. And David is somehow in the midst of the wilderness, finding enough respite to have this kind of spiritual revelation that, God, what I want more than anything is to have a place for you to dwell, but it's for me so that I can be in your presence. Have you ever given someone a gift that was actually more about you than it was them? I, I've never done that. So suppose I, suppose I had, in my first year of marriage, bought my wife car mats, very expensive car mats, by the way, $60 car mats. I know even Josh is looking at me like I'm dumb, and, and he, he likes those kinds of things. So I, suppose I had done that, you know, that was the one time in my life that I gave someone a gift that was actually more about me. But David is almost self-admittedly saying, God, I, I know you don't need this, but I want a place where I can come, where I know, where I can approach with confidence knowing you will be there. And then we can, if we had time, we could read that story in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David is resting in his palace and he says to the Lord, here I am resting Things are fantastic. God, you need a home too. And that was David's way of saying, God, you need car mats. <laughs> and God said, David, you're not the one to buy me car mats. Let's let somebody else do that later. So what is the temple? The temple was David's dream and Solomon's task. And here's the thing that David did know, that David understood, that God's agenda from the beginning has been to make space for us that he would fill with himself. From the garden to the tent of meeting to the tabernacle, and now the temple is the next iteration of God making something or allowing something to be made to fill with himself for our benefit. That's what the temple is. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the last verse in 1 Kings chapter 7. And then we're going to read through the first 11 verses of chapter 8. 
When all the work King Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and all the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the Israelites came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. And when all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings. The priests and the Levites carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counting, counted. What an image. The priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place, and they are still there this day. Well, not today, like not October 15th, but the day that this was written, okay? There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. And when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that in these next few remaining moments <clears throat> that you would quicken my mind and fill my mouth with what is essential for today. And I pray that our ears and our hearts would be open to you. Lord, that the spirit of celebration of welcoming new people into the family of God, brothers and sisters, would continue, that we would never grow tired of things like baptisms and learning of people who are learning of you and being brought into your family. And I pray that it would inspire us to be the faithful people you are calling us all to be. And we ask it today in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And God's people say, amen. amen. I was thinking about ceremonies Special ceremonies. You might even think about today what we did. I was specifically thinking about weddings this week. I was thinking about my own wedding. My own wedding was so elaborate that my mother-in-law had so much glitter at my own wedding that the church at which we were married made a policy. This is not made up for sermon, by the way. This is reality. That the church at which we were married, which my wife's grandfather built made a policy afterwards that glitter was not to enter the doors of the church. I promise you this is true. Because it took them so long to clean up the glitter after our wedding. Promise you this is true. And I was thinking about our wedding and other weddings and how you have so much preparation all for one moment that everybody's waiting for. You can have a bride, a groom, a priest, or a minister. You can have a beautifully decorated chapel or sanctuary or church. You can have the wedding license prepared. You can have the bridesmaids and the groomsmen. You can have the family fly in from all over the place. 
But we've all seen Runaway Bride. We know that that alone is not enough. What makes a wedding? What makes a wedding is when the vows are stated responsively and the groom and the bride both commit and say, I do, and the priest or the pastor or the minister pronounces them husband and wife, in that moment, the covenant is established. Not before when the bride and the groom are in the green room. You might say that the moment that everyone comes to see is the moment that immediately follows that. The moment when the minister says, you may now kiss the bride, even Izzy knows, which signifies that the vows are done and the covenant is established. Many of you came today not to see these gorgeous horse troughs filled with 80-degree water and me and Pastor Jade get a little bit wet. No, you came to see people submerged and raised out of the water. That's what makes baptism, right? What makes a marriage is the covenant that is established in that moment. So what makes a temple is not a beautiful building that took four years to build and many scholars believe was even to this day potentially the most expensive building that has ever been built by human hands. What makes a temple is not a beautiful building. It's not a dedication ceremony. What makes a temple is when the Lord Yahweh determines to descend and fill that space with himself. I could just stop right here. Why not? I'm kind of tempted to. We got some kids in the room. But friends, let it not be lost on us, especially those of us who have been doing this for ages. We've been doing this for decades. We say our prayers. We read our scriptures. We give our tithes and offerings. Those things are necessary. You might even say they're essential. But those are not what make a Christian life. What, make a, what makes a Christian life is when the Spirit of God descends into and on a human being. The temple is not a temple if verse 11 is not there and the glory of the Lord does not come and fill that space with himself. Without that, Solomon has spent a lot of money on a beautiful building. You might call it a museum. The difference between a museum and a temple is the presence of God, which no one in that space controlled. They had done all that they could do, and Solomon had spent all the money, he had done all the work, he brought in all the people, all the elders from Israel, brought in the ark is the very last thing. And then there's the moment that they're waiting on, and it's like, God, if you don't show up, this is all for nothing. And in many ways... That is exactly what happens here on Sunday mornings. But here's the difference on Sunday mornings. Now I'm totally off script. Who knows what kind of sermon this is going to be. But here's the thing with Sunday mornings. We are promised the presence of God because God is already dwelling in us. So when we come, we're not begging God like the prophets of Baal to come and descend upon us. And we're not waiting with holy trepidation. Is God going to be here? The question is, are we going to recognize the ways in which God is here? Okay, that was a little extra. There is this one verse that I find so fascinating. And it is the verse that says the priests could not perform their services. And here's the thing. All religious activity is preparing time, space, and matter for God to fill. 
all spiritual, all religious activity, all of our private devotions, all of our giving, all of the stuff that we are doing is preparing time, space, and matter, matter being our, ourselves, for God to come in and dwell in that space and in that time. That is all of what we're doing. We don't transform ourselves. We don't make ourselves holy. Spiritual formation, in many ways, is out of our hands. All that spiritual formation is, is us getting in position. It's posturing before the Lord that, God, when you act, I'm ready to be changed. That is what we do. But it matters that we do it. God didn't fill that temple halfway through the process. God didn't come when they were putting the doors on the place. God came when everything was prepared and he followed the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I heard this story in a podcast. Well, it's not really a story. It's a metaphor about how to sustain and how to keep the presence of God and the water of God, the life of God, the activity of God. And it was by Dr. Chris Green, who's the one who's going to be here in two weeks. And he talked about it. Um, by way of water and cisterns and wells. And he said what many of us, particularly in the charismatic and Pentecostal traditions have done, is we have experienced the reign of God, the literal R-A-I-N, not R-E-I-G-N. That could be very confusing, I understand now in this moment. The reign of God, we have experienced the outpouring of the reign of God at some point in our lives. And what has happened is we've thought, well, we don't need these cisterns and we don't need these wells because look around, there's so much water. When God shows up, it said there was a dark, thick cloud of glory. And there are those moments that many of us have experienced in the presence of God where the rain of God descends upon us. And this happened in 1906 at Azusa Street. The Pentecostal movement was birthed in 1906 in Azusa Street When the Lord descended and it seemed like everything else, the priests couldn't do their work. And we, some of us, have experienced those. Earlier this year, Asbury Revival, it also touched many other college campuses around the country. And the mistake that many of those people made, particularly the early Pentecostals about a decade in, was that they cracked the cisterns and they said, because God pours out his rain... We don't need vessels to store and steward the rain. And what Chris has said and what he's argued for is the cisterns don't quench our thirst. The cisterns are not the living water of Jesus. But the cisterns receive the living water of Jesus when the rain comes so that in dry seasons, we don't turn into the prophets of Baal because we're thirsty and we're begging for God to do something because we have no depth to our spirituality. So there is this tension here of they do what they can do, which is certainly the lesser important thing. And God does what only he can do. And he descends and fills the temple with himself. So there is this tension for us. There is this tension of religious activity and spiritual activity in doing the things that we do. 
but we must not be misguided that those things are not the things that bring us life. It is God's presence alone that quenches our thirst. That is living water that we come here for. We don't come here to look at archaic cisterns and go, oh, what a beautiful practice the Lord's Supper is. We come and we say we meet Jesus in the Eucharist at communion at the Lord's Supper. Amen? So very quickly, I have three cisterns to help us preserve the water when the presence of the Lord descends. The first cistern, now if I gave most of you a thousand guesses, you wouldn't guess this. The first cistern is obeying the law. Oh, golly. I don't mean like speed limits and stuff. I mean like the Ten Commandments. There is this weird verse in here where it seems that the presence of the Lord descends as soon as the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the holy place. And if you've seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, as many times as I have, you would be tempted to believe that there is like some secret anointing oil, you know, that when Moses was on Mount Horeb and he's in the presence radiating with God's presence, that like some of his sweat droplets were captured in a little vessel you know, or God gave him some secret scrolls. Like, why else would so many people revere the, the Ark of the Covenant in this way? But it specifically says that all that was in the Ark were the two tablets that give us the Ten Commandments. I find that a little perplexing. It's like, we know the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, most of us in the room don't even really think about very much. We assume that we know them, and we assume, based on misreadings of Paul and people who have misread Paul, many of us have heard them preach many times, and we've thought, like, the law has kind of put a bad taste in our mouth, the commandments. Like, we're not really into that anymore. We're more into the grace stuff, you know? But we fail to remember that the commandments were phase one that God gave to his people to teach them how to live a life of flourishing one with another. There is this beautiful quote that I came across recently. It's a quote from St. Augustine. I believe it will be on the screen. And the quote says, God does not so much command, but beg for our obedience from inside the needs of those around us. Now think about that. Many of us hear things like law and the Ten Commandments, and we feel like God is imposing these arbitrary things on us. Like it's God's way of keeping us under control putting his thumb down on us. But what St. Augustine says, I think, is so beautiful. There is a revelation there that in the heart of the law, the heart of the Ten Commandments is actually God's concern for your neighbor. That God doesn't so much command us as beg that we obey him for the sake of the people whose lives are affected by our decisions. That's what so many of us miss when we think about the law, when we think about the commandments, when we think about the ways that God has called us to live in the world. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. The law must go from external boundaries, boundaries our mind recognizes to an internal guide that our heart longs for. It's not arbitrary that God's presence fills the temple immediately after the Ark of the Covenant, only containing those two tablets, is ushered in on the shoulders of priests and Levites. Friends, many of us 
are trying to live the life of God for the benefits of getting into heaven or living a blessed life. And we just think, man, it's just so hard to do all these things that God is calling us to do. Like, it's 2023, God, come on. Like, get a little more progressive, you know? Like, get with the times. Things are hard. It's hard following you. Do you know how social media pressure works, God? You know? But this is not meant to be a condemning word. This is meant to be, guys, this is given to you for the sake of the people around you. I would actually like for you to turn and look at the people next to you. And what if their well-being and their flourishing were dependent upon the choices that you chose whether to obey or disobey God? How would you live? Would it change the way that you think about lustful thoughts or what you do with your money or what you do with excess time or whether you're actually going to engage in a few minutes of prayer a day or actually going to get up early even though you're just kind of a little more tired than usual? What if you knew that the people you cared about most deeply, that their flourishing and their well-being depended on your obedience to the law that God has called you to? How would you live? Can we be the kind of people for whom the law turns from external boundaries our mind recognizes to an internal guide that our heart longs for? The first cistern that will help us contain and prepare for the presence, not contain is a terrible word, by the way, preserve and prepare for the presence of God is obeying his commands, obeying the law. I know that's really outdated. It comes like all the way from the Pentateuch and stuff, but it still applies. Number two, the second cistern. This one's even more fun. Repentance. Good Lord. I promise it will get better. I promise. Repentance. The presence of the Lord leads us to repent and receive forgiveness. I have a few verses from chapter 8 that I want us to read. These are not going to be um, sequential, but let's just go ahead and put these up on the screen. This is from Solomon's prayer of dedication. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Next verse, 33. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave their ancestors. Next, verse 36. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Next verse. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. We're not going to keep going, but I wanted you to see the picture. Solomon, in his dedication prayer of the temple, in all of his wisdom, already knows God, there's no way. There's no way we're going to obey you perfectly. There's no way we're not going to stray. Let this be a place where not if, but when we turn, when our rebellious hearts get the best of us, when we lose control of our tongue, when those idols look so attractive, and for the case of Solomon, how about this? When those princesses of other nations are so beautiful 
and I'm tempted to marry, I don't know, approximately 700 of them, Lord, let this be a place where we can turn and we can receive forgiveness because our hearts, we know our hearts are not going to be perfect, but our hearts have been convicted of sin and we want to change. The beautiful thing, excuse me, the beautiful thing is that the temple has a built-in system for repentance and forgiveness. There are many pictures you can look up of, you know, of course they're not real. They didn't exactly have Polaroid back then. But there are these mock-up images that you can review the temple and the whole courts, the whole temple mount. And you'll see the altar is huge. It's like before you actually get into the temple, it's the primary thing. And it is actually big enough to sacrifice more cattle and goats than can be numbered. I mean, it's pretty astounding how large this altar is. And here's the thing, God knew. Back in chapter six, we're not going to read it, but in chapter six, right in the middle of the building process, God interjects into Solomon's building process and he says, Solomon, as for this temple you're building, make sure that you continue to obey my laws and my commands And if you do that, then I will be sure to fulfill the promises that I made to your father, David. God is telling them right up front, more than any temple could ever satisfy me, my people learning to live in the way that I've called them to live is far more important to me. And so the temple is made, and part of the instructions for the temple are preparing for when that doesn't happen, friends. You and I are not going to be perfect. And Pastor Jade read a couple of weeks ago in 1 Kings chapter 11 on, on Solomon's life, where Solomon did not live up to the standard of his father David. And if you think about that, it's actually really peculiar because David made enormous mistakes. But one of the huge differences between David and Solomon is that David regularly was struck with conviction and repented. And in the narrative of 1 Kings, there is no record of Solomon ever repenting or being convicted. If you read Ecclesiastes, there are many hints at that. But in 1 Kings, we don't get that story. The temple, the presence of God, are the place where when we mess up, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. The second cistern is the cistern of repentance, knowing that when we repent, we will always receive forgiveness. The third is prayer. Now, there is this one verse where it says, and we read it, that Solomon and his people were like basically just throwing animals into the fire. They were just sacrificing thousands, hundreds and thousands of animals. So we know that the temple was about sacrifice. It was about atonement. But then what follows immediately are more than 40 verses either talking about prayer, blessing the people on behalf of God, standing in the position of the priest, or actually praying. And it's as if the author is trying to tell us something, something that Jesus makes really clear a few centuries later, and that is that the temple is to be a house of prayer for all of God's people. Now, I realize time is slipping away. There is so much that I want to say about prayer. But I want us to look at these three verses from 1 Kings 8, 27. Let's go ahead and put this up, 27 through 30. 
But will God really dwell on earth? This is the same prayer that Solomon has been praying, this prayer of dedication. The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Okay, good acknowledgement, Solomon. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Last verse. Hear the supplication of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. A few verses later is God's response. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 1. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all he desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time as he appeared to him in Gibeon. And the Lord said, I have heard the prayer and the plea you have made before me, and I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Friends, there is something so special, not just that the glory cloud descended and it gave everybody goosebumps and they couldn't work, but that that in that moment was God putting his eyes and his heart, giving access and attention to those who would come to him in prayer so that the people of Israel knew, if I can just get to the temple, and sometimes if you were too far away, you would just pray toward the temple, because that is the place where God's eyes and his ears and his heart were always there and available for his people. This changed everything. How has it become that prayer is often seen as our biggest hurdle in the life of a believer? when it is actually our greatest gift and privilege. How has that happened? And I don't stand here as someone who has perfected the art of prayer. I stand up here as someone who regularly struggles and has gone through seasons of my life where I have struggled to pray, where I, there have been seasons where I have just abdicated all responsibility of praying. And part of the reason is because I have only looked at it as a responsibility. And I have not seen that this is the place, the place of prayer is the place where we can come and we can actually touch God's heart. Friends, how many of us are missing out on so much of the goodness of the life of God because we're only thinking of prayer as an obligation, as a way of just saying, I gotta gotta tell God all the things that I think are wrong in my life when he already knows and I don't know how much he's actually gonna do anyways. Here's the beauty of the the life of prayer in a believer. This is the beautiful thing, is that if the life of God is Father, Son, and Spirit living in perfect harmony, in perfect communion, that Ephesians 2 says that we have been in Christ seated in heavenly places. Do you know what that means? That means that when you pray, you're not praying to a God who is far off, who you have to convince that your voice and your asks are worthwhile listening to. You are praying standing shoulder to shoulder with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That prayer is actually standing in the place of Jesus. For those of you who were baptized today, 
You have been brought into the family, not as stepchildren. You have been brought up, standing shoulder to shoulder with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the privilege of the life that you have been brought into. And the beauty of the life of prayer is that if God's life is a song, he wants you to sing. He's not scared of your voice messing it up. God is saying, I've given you a voice. Come sing in this song. And somehow he works out his faithful providence in the world while not just obliging us this opportunity to say our prayers, but he takes what we have to say into consideration for how it's done. Friends, this is an incredible privilege. Stand with me. <clears throat> Seth, come. Carl Barth has this incredible statement about prayer. In Christ, we are set at God's side and lifted up to him to the place where decisions are made in the affairs of God's government. Nothing less than that is what happens when we step into the place of prayer. And I want to speak just pastorally to you for one moment before I realize that um, you should have the communion elements. If you do not, if you did not receive them when you walked in, just go ahead and put your hand up and one of the ushers will find you and we'll partake in just a moment. You'll have to raise them high for these guys to see you, y'all. There we go. There's a number all around. If prayer is a struggle for you, here is my counsel, my pastoral counsel for you. Just open your heart before God. Start there. Your fears, your disappointments, your struggles, the things about this life that are just not what you thought they were going to be, all the ways that you're sad about what it's not, about how you're not better than you wish you were, start in that place. And here's what I can tell you. It won't be long until that prayer somehow in the grace of God turns and it turns toward adoration of God, and it turns toward intercession for his people, and it turns for caring about people in the Gaza Strip, and it care, caring about the city of Jerusalem, and caring about the war in Ukraine. And somehow, when you open your heart, and your only agenda is just to share God all the things that are inside your heart, God goes, give me, give me those things. And suddenly, you know what? There's space there's space in your heart. While your heart is open before the Lord, he does a little switcheroo. This little beautiful thing where he takes those things about you that you think are so ugly that really aren't that ugly to God, and he takes them and he says, let me just give you a little more of my heart. The third cistern to help us preserve and prepare for the presence of God is living a life of prayer. God wants you to live in communion with him. It's not that he doesn't know what's wrong with the world. He wants to hear your voice because he wants to draw you up and to participate in what he's already doing. Amen. Now, if you've been a Christian or are a Jew for more than 10 minutes, you will know that that temple was destroyed and a second one was built. And the second one was not nearly as elaborate. The second one was destroyed in AD 70, shortly after the life of Jesus. And friends, here's the good news today, that there will not be a third temple. John in the book of Revelation says it like this. In his vision of the end, he says, I did not see a temple in this city. 
Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In the here and now, you and I, by proxy, by extension, are the body of Christ. He is the temple. And because we are his body, we are now made the temple. Both Paul and Peter talk about this. But there is coming a day when the container for God's presence, when the place that was really small, that was filled with that glory cloud, will not be really small anymore. There is coming a time where everything that is and everything that stands between us and the fullness of God's presence will be obliterated and made right and the fullness of God will be everywhere and as we sang today, all in all. And that is the day that we are looking forward to as God's people. Go ahead and peel open this thing that today we are declaring is bread and then go ahead and peel back the grape juice cover. And when you have the wafer in your hand, you can just take a couple of seconds and go ahead and break it. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, for your willingness to be a broken body that the veil between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple might be torn from top to bottom so that what was contained for a few might be distributed to many. And we look forward to the day when it's not just distributed to many, but it is always everywhere around us, in us, through us, and around us. We look forward to that day and we say thank you for drawing us in here and now through your broken, broken body. And the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Church, let us receive the broken body of Christ for you and me. And in the same way, after dinner, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. That <clears throat> this is my blood shed for the remission of your sins that we might always have one to whom we can run and repent and receive forgiveness. Let us receive of the blood of Christ shed for you and for me. Thanks be to God for these good gifts. Friends, it's been a beautiful day with baptisms for the sake of time and because we have our elementary students, we're not going to sing the doxology, but I wanna pronounce it over you as our benediction. Friends, praise God everywhere that you go this week from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, every one of you creatures here below. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. May the peace of God rest on you and draw you into the life of prayer. May you receive forgiveness when you need it this week. Go in peace, full of the Holy Spirit. It was good to be together today, friends. We'll see you next week. You are dismissed.